0: Now it was just uh, it was one of those nights for me <laughs> where you feel much cooler than you actually are. See, it was a late summer night, still warm enough to be in shorts and a t-shirt, and the wind was blowing through our hair as we were in our friend's brand new cherry red Jeep Wrangler, top down. Music just blaring over the speakers. The year is 1998. Few of us had freshly graduated high school, so we still kind of had that like high school grad swagger going on. And we were just out there cruising, just getting noticed, putting out the vibe. And we're driving through downtown when we came to a stoplight. And we glanced at the car next to us, two dudes who were obviously feeling pretty cool themselves. And the driver gave us one of those macho head nods. And he revved his engine. We revved ours back to accept the challenge. And the light turned green. And our wheels squealed off the starting line. And we immediately pulled out ahead of them as if like they were hardly trying. And our jeep then merged into their lane so that they could get a good view of the backside of the victors. <laughs> and my friend, sitting in the back seat next to me, apparently he, he just kind of got caught up in the moment. And he threw off his seatbelt He began unbuckling his pants. He grabbed up, and he jumped up, and he grabbed a hold of the T-bar right there. And then he pulled down his pants down the backside, giving those guys a clear view of a full moon that day. (laughs) Oh, and we all had a good laugh until we heard the unmistakable sounds of a police siren. See, we hadn't really paid attention to how far that car had fallen behind. And unbeknownst to us, they had really seen a cop car pulled out of a parking lot right in front of them and right behind us. And so my friend had in fact just mooned a police officer. And as we were getting pulled over in the parking lot of the Rogue Valley Mall. Oh, we knew we were in trouble. Because, you know, mooning a police officer isn't something that you can sort of easily explain your way out of. And I will never forget my friend who was sitting in the front passenger seat. He leaned back to us. And I mean, he sternly said, say as little as possible. Let me do the talking. So the police officer, he approached our vehicle. He asked for all of our IDs. I remember he said to us, listen, I don't know if you guys are just that courageous or that stupid to moon a police officer. (laughs) We assured him it was just stupidity as we were all like cowering in fear in the moment. (laughs) And it was then that my friend found a very subtle way to interject the name of his father into the conversation. And the officer recognized the name. See, my friend's dad was working as a detective for Medford PD at the time. And so the officer, he, he gave us a little warning of the dangers of our stunt. And well, then he let us go on our way. And it was a very valuable life lesson that I learned that night, that who you know really matters, (laughs) that despite the odds or maybe the circumstances, knowing the right person can make a world of difference. And we normally just think of this as a life lesson that most of us will learn at some point, but it was also the most important spiritual lesson that Jesus ever taught. When it comes to God's kingdom, who you know is all that matters. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, if you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along with me. See, it all comes down to this. Jesus says in verse 13, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gates. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, this is actually the wrap-up to the great sermon that Jesus has been preaching, we call the Sermon on the Mount. And if Jesus, if I were coaching Jesus here on his public speaking, i definitely would enc- would have encouraged him not to end the sermon on such a down note. Jesus. No one likes a Debbie Downer. <laughs> because it feels so gloomy, even exclusive, doesn't it, to say, well, only a few are gonna find their way to God or be on the right path to heaven. Jesus never really cared about winning any sort of popularity vote. See, the stakes were always too high to not be clear and direct when it comes to a way of salvation, even though much of the world will be offended by it. When it comes to God's kingdom, are we in or are we out? Jesus is always gonna speak with this sense of urgency and directness because he knows that we will live forever, that we're here on earth for a short time, that hell is a real place and he loves us too much to let us go there. That's why Jesus would boldly and some would even say arrogantly claim. That if we want into god 's kingdom, well that road passes through him. He is the gate that's why he says in John fourteen six, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. no one comes to the Father except through me and in John 109 he just plainly states it says Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. And so finding God means knowing Jesus. It's the one Jesus declaration that will always be so offensive to the majority of the world. Because to those who choose another path, it will sound conceited. Narrow-minded of Jesus. Some will say, well, it doesn't sound like a very loving God to not let those into heaven who would really like to be there. And in an effort then to be more inclusive, most of culture will always preach many different pathways to God. That as long as our intentions are good, Well, God will surely reward us with heaven. And I am here to tell you that I wish that were the case too. I wish I got to choose who deserved heaven. I'd like to be able to set the bar for humanity that says, "Ah, this is good enough. Because I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd probably always find a way to let those in who I really want in, right? We're so, we are so great at grading on a curve. We're good at rationalizing why ah, we're, we're definitely above that, that moral standard. And well, if we're not if we find ourselves maybe insecure about our own moral standing maybe someone else will all we have to do is just find someone to compare ourselves to right i mean i am far from perfect but compared to bin laden i am like a saint <laughs> it's easy enough i mean you see the problem there we are imperfect people often with a flawed perspective of righteousness and justice. In fact, it's arrogant, us, God's creation, to think that we get to set that moral bar for him. It's the creator that sets that standard. And he says, you wanna earn your way? You wanna deserve heaven? Okay. The bar is set at sin. So if you've ever blown it in your life and you've sinned, well, then you are not worthy of being in the presence of a perfect and holy God. So good luck with that. And if we ever come to this point where we realize we're never going to be able to earn our way. Well then, we better know someone. And that was really Jesus' main point in the whole Sermon on the Mount teaching. He was explaining God's standards of holiness. And he would do so very often with these phrases. He would say, so you've heard it said. Ah, but I say to you, And he would go on to define just how high that bar has been set. And in doing so, he wasn't trying to get us to simply strive just harder and harder to be good. He was trying to show us that we are, in fact, all sinners, desperate for a savior, See, Jesus doesn't merely call us to a better moral life. He calls us to himself. And it's because he is the gate. He is the savior. It's through relationship with him that we're granted access to a good and holy God. It's by relationship with him that we find our souls satisfied and our longing for eternity fulfilled. It's through relationship with him that we experience and express in this life such kingdom values like peace and love and grace. And so the litmus test is this. Do we only know of Jesus? Or do we truly know him? Because Jesus is going to tell us that, listen, there will be those who assume they're in. Because they knew all about him. They did great things for him. Their church attendance was impeccable. They served in ministry. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I like Luke's account of this because he gives us, you know, like a little more context to the discussion that was going on there a little bit. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 23, someone had actually asked Jesus. So this all started with a question that was proposed to him. And he asked, Lord, will only a few be saved? And Jesus replied, Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to, but will fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, Oh, but we ate and we drank with you. You taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Now, those, those are some pretty frightening words. Again, very direct. Direct. And by them, I don't think that Jesus means for us who may have a relationship with God to really begin, like, you know, questioning our salvation or anything. But I do think that he means to cause us some great self reflection. Is my faith based on a relationship with Jesus or something else? And Jesus calls us through this narrow gate, calls us to himself. And then afterwards, he shifts gears just a little bit in there in this conversation. And he begins speaking then of the results of knowing him, of traveling down this narrow road that leads to God's kingdom. And he does so by speaking of a couple of fruit trees, In verse 17, he says, A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Now, I think that we need to use a little bit of caution with these verses, even similar ones in the Bible, because with them, we can't confuse the way of salvation with the results of salvation. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't now adding on to what he said about himself being the only way. He isn't saying now that salvation is about a relationship and producing this kind of fruit in our lives. But listen, Jesus will also never shy away from claiming that a genuine relationship with him will naturally result in this kind of fruit, that when we grow in relationship with them, we should naturally begin to reflect his character. And God's will is good fruit. And Jesus also isn't saying that we should get judgy with other people's salvation. To begin judging their actions and their decisions in life. And that should be quite obvious because Jesus actually in the very beginning of this chapter will start it by saying... Don't judge others. Ron talked about it a couple of weeks ago. You can go back and listen to it. What Jesus is doing here is he's again causing some self-reflection. Because what is produced in our life reveals the genuineness of our faith. And so a little fruit inspection, it's a good thing. If I begin to act in such a way that is opposed to God's character, you know what? I should begin questioning, how's my relationship with God doing? Or those who know and and care for me, they should lovingly ask me, hey, how are you and God? Or if we're considering taking some spiritual advice from someone, Jesus tells us, pay attention to the fruit. That's why he begins this section here. We didn't read it, but he begins it by saying, beware of false prophets or teachers. Because it's not a good idea to take advice about being close to God when that person, it should be apparent to us, isn't close to God. What's being produced in their life should, of course, match what they claim. It reminds me of a college student who learned this lesson of his walk matching his talk when he invited his mom over for dinner at the end of a semester. She lived several hours away from the town that uh, he was living in. And she really struggled with the fact that her son had a girl for a roommate. Now, call her old-fashioned, all right? But she just was concerned about the sexual temptation that could result from that. She had always really raised him, instilling in him the sanctity of marriage and talked to him about how God felt about sex being reserved for marriage, and so during that evening meal and then throughout the night, well, mom watched the two of them interact. And her son's roommate was a very beautiful girl. And she couldn't help but still wonder if there was anything between them more than just, you know, roommates or friends. And at the end of the evening, well, her son, he could tell what his mom was thinking, and so he assured her, Mom, listen, you've got nothing to worry about. There's nothing between us. We're just roommates who happen to get along really well. Well, about a week later, the girl came to the son and said, you know, this might sound crazy, but... Ever since your mom came over for dinner that night, I've been unable to find the can opener. You don't think she would have taken it, do you? Now, he did think that that was quite crazy, but he agreed to text his mom anyhow just to ask, and so he texted this Hey, mom, I'm not saying you did take our can opener, I'm not saying you didn't take our can opener. But one's been missing since you were here. Five minutes later, his mom texted back. She said, Son, I'm not saying you are sleeping with your roommate. I'm not saying, but the fact remains that if she were sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the can opener by now. Love, mom. That's right. And the moral to that story is, don't mess with mom. (laughs) But we all understand, don't we, that when what we're doing isn't matching with what we're claiming, well, (laughs) there's a problem there. Something has obviously gone wrong. And that's all Jesus is saying, that if we claim to have a faith or a relationship with him, our actions, our decisions, our words should become a reflection of him. Now, not perfect, of course. We're always gonna have our disappointments and our failures when it comes to following God because sin is always gonna be an issue for us. But there should at least be a desire To repent or to turn from our sins and become even better at following God. It's why Jesus says this in John 14, 23. He says it elsewhere too, but he says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Do you know that obedience and love always gets tied together in the Bible? And it's because we're never meant to follow God outside of a relationship with him. And our obedience isn't what earns us the relationship. It's a result of it. Just as parents, right? I mean, we, we would hope for our kids to obey, obey our instructions. And not just because... They're going to live under our roof. They're going to follow our rules, even though sometimes we might have to resort to that. But we want them to listen and obey because we'd hope that they would know by now that they can trust us, that they don't have to question our love and our care for them. And we don't ever want our kids to feel like they in some way have to earn our love. They just have it. We're their parents. But don't we also love it when they enjoy bringing a smile to mom and dad's face? I put it this way in your notes, that when it comes to our salvation and to our faith, God is opposed to our earning, but he's not opposed to our effort, I think that like a good father, God loves to see his kids trying to follow his example. He loves to see us put his character on display through maybe acts of kindness or good deeds. That's the effort. But all of those things are really just meaningless. If they're not built upon the foundation of a genuine relationship with God, which is simply a matter of his grace. It has invited us to, not allowed us to earn it. So before we we begin to maybe do these great things in Jesus' name, we're to be sure that we're building upon the right foundation, Here's what Jesus says about that in verse 24. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And the worrisome part there of Jesus' analogy is that the two people that he speaks of looked just the same. They both built houses, presumably very similar looking ones maybe even in the same neighborhood, which means that Jesus is speaking of two people who claimed to have the same kind of faith in him. They were both people who looked Christian. The only difference, of course, was the foundation that their faith was built upon. And the foundation isn't something that's easily visible to the normal house guest. It's only the one who builds the house that really knows. And it normally isn't revealed until the storm hits. It's always, I think, an uncomfortable part of God's plan for our life. That a lot of times it's, the storms that are an important part of our faith development because they reveal where we stand. They reveal what it is that we've truly been building our life on. For example, if I've been building my life on the approval and the applause of people, that's where I find my self-worth. Well, when the storm hits, that causes me maybe some shame or a great humiliation, man, I am devastated by it. If I'm building my life upon acquiring maybe wealth or status or power and the storm hits that bankrupts me of those things, (laughs) I'm devastated by it. But if the storm hits, When my foundation is built upon a relationship with Jesus, where I find my value and my identity, there's nothing that can strip me of those things. And the time to build that kind of foundation is always in the present. Because you can't fix a foundation in the middle of the storm. That's normally either done before or it's going to have to be done afterwards because in the midst of it, most often we just got to ride that storm out and we assess the damage later. Which means that the time to become grounded in our relationship with God and grounded in his word because that's how we're really going to get to know God. It's always going to be the now, in the present. And when he and his word is at the foundation of our life, well, it begins to affect things. It affects the actions that we take, the decisions that we make, the words that we speak, because every meaningful thing in life becomes cultivated through this relationship with him. I heard once about a a vineyard and in the midst of this beautiful vineyard, there was once this sick grapevine that was struggling to grow. And the poor vine really stood out when it was compared to all the others that were just flourishing around it. And year after year, It remained unhealthy. It produced either no fruit or bad fruit. And finally, the owner went and he dug up the soil around the sickly vine to finally discover the reason why. He found that directly underneath was this abandoned, empty water well. It had been concealed with a circle of wood that had been buried underneath the shallow ground. And the roots of this sick vine had grown long. But they had actually grown into an empty well where they just hung there, dangling in thin air. And so the vine was always sick because it was trying to draw life from really nothing. And it's a great picture of us in our foundation, because if we're to live and we're to grow and we're to to be productive Christians, well, then we must move beyond merely just maybe knowing about Jesus and come to truly know him and our relationship with him must be what the roots of our faith are able to grow deep down into. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, there's a great verse there. I love it. You should maybe uh, underline it. In fact, I, I underlined one verse for you. Paul says, and now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. And let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. See, the narrow gates and the fruitful tree and the solid foundation that Jesus speaks of in here aren't always the easiest and quickest routes to take. But they do always result in an overflowing of thankfulness. Because there's comfort in knowing that you're traveling down the right road. There's a joy that comes from producing the kind of fruit in our lives that'll put a smile on God's face And that will bless others. And there's a contentment in knowing that when the storms hit, they may cause us much discomfort, but they can never take out the foundation of being a person that belongs to God. And when it comes to choosing one of these two each of these Jesus analogies were reminded that Jesus doesn't make faith easy, but he does make it simple. He's made our faith simple because all that really matters is who you know. In fact, in the Gospels, when Jesus' disciples would come to a faith in him, They were always welcome to do so by just a couple very simple invitations of Jesus. He would normally either say, come to me or come follow me. And that was it. It was simple. And it's because all that really mattered for them was getting to know him. But of course, the adventures that Jesus would then lead them on, well, those weren't always so easy. And here's why. Three things that I put in your notes there. The gate is narrow because it's a sign of lordship. Claiming Jesus as Savior or Lord means giving him command of our life. It's making him Lord over such things as maybe our careers or our marriages, our dating life, our finances, whatever it might be. It's saying, God, I know my will here. But you know what? Even more, I want your will to be done. And in this passage that we read through, you noticed, I hope, that Jesus responded quite harshly to those people who would call out to him, Lord, Lord, but who didn't seem to really want their daily life to have much to do with their spiritual life. And so here's the question that it brings up for us. Have we allowed God to be Lord over all the areas of our life? And the road is narrow because it's a matter of motive. Jesus wants us to follow him because we're motivated to love him. At one point, two of Jesus' followers, there were two brothers. They came up to Jesus who was walking with, all the other disciples along this road. And these two brothers, they came up and they, they put their arms around Jesus' shoulders. They created this little huddle so that the guys walking on ahead weren't able to listen in. And they said, hey, Jesus, listen, when we get to Jerusalem and you set up your kingdom, do us this one, this one favor, one promise. It's all we ask. Let us serve you as your number one and two in command. Jesus, I imagine, got this real solemn look on his face. He said, oh, you guys don't even know what you're asking. He said, oh yeah, we do. We ran this one by mom. She's in on it too. She said it was a good, it was a good idea. And it was an idea or a request that sounded so good outwardly. Jesus, we just want to serve you. But inwardly, it was fueled by these wrong intentions. They were really motivated by the power that Jesus could give them. They wanted status. They wanted to outrank all the others. And so here's our question. Are we motivated to follow Jesus by love or is it something else? And the narrow road is less traveled because it's a path of discipleship. Being a disciple of someone is a little like interning with them, but with the intention of becoming just like them. And that's one of God's main goals of a relationship with us, to shape us into his character. It's this process of transformation that we would undergo. Or the big spiritual term for this is sanctification. The process of being made holy, which we all got a long way to go. But at least... We know where we're going. The honest truth, if I could just be really real with you, all the honest truth is that far too many people think that because they've prayed a one-time prayer to receive Christ, that they're all good. That it doesn't matter what path they take because at one point they called out, Lord, Lord, and it may be that Jesus will say, I never really knew you because you were trusting in a one-time decision but showing no signs of discipleship. I mean, that's like getting married and showing no interest in living together. You don't get... Married for the ceremony or the wedding gifts. I mean, that's a nice perk. But the main point is to live, to learn, to do life well in relationship with one another. I think that God is opposed to us sort of proposing to him without giving our life to him. And so is our desire to really be shaped by God. And to be shaped, of course, well, who you know is what really matters. This morning during our time of communion, if you don't feel in relationship with Jesus, this would be a great time to express that desire to him because through communion we reflect on the amount of love that God has shown us. He so badly wanted to restore his relationship with us that had been broken by our sin that he came to us in the form of Jesus and allowed himself to be the death penalty that our sins deserve making eternal life with him available to all. And it's a gift of his grace, not an award that we earn. And he did so by allowing Jesus to be a sacrifice, to shed his blood, to give his body up there on the cross, which we symbolically remember Every Sunday morning, through this act of communion, we take this piece of bread, we take the juice, and we say, wow, God, thank you for loving me this much. Thank you that you did this much in the name of relationship." And if you so desire that relationship this morning, all you have to do is say, God, oh, I want that. And you lean in. You press in, just as Jesus would say, hey, come to me. Come follow me. You accept the invitation. And then, just like after a marriage proposal, you begin to live and do life together. There's gonna be some elders and some prayer partners in the back and if you would like to take advantage of that and pray with them this morning, they love to do that. If you express this desire for a relationship with Jesus, if you don't have that yet, man, they would love to talk to you about that. Or myself or Ron will be hanging out as well. So let me pray for you. We're gonna do one last song. Send you out with a blessing. But during this song, you can, if you so choose, go and grab the elements and take communion on your own. Lord, thank you just for your word. Thank you for the way in which you um, have sacrificed yourself for us. Thank you for the relationship, God, that you make available to us. For some of us here this morning, we may accept that invitation for the very first time. For a lot of us others, God, we continue as we do every week and even every day. (laughs) We celebrate. Say, thank you, God, that you have loved a sinner like me. And so, Lord, we celebrate that now. Thank you for your love. In your name, amen.